You're listening to Let Them Eat Avocado Toast, a podcast dedicated to offering a no gimmicks and ethical approach to building personal wealth and basically overall adulting with your host, Kristen Atherton, brought to you by Camex LLC. Hey girlies, it's me, Kristen Atherton, your elder millennial big sis reporting for duty. In the last episode of Let the Meat Avo Toast, we talked all about budgeting and net worth. This week, we'll discuss the credit game in great detail. Now, there's tons to say, so I had to split this one into two different parts. Today, we will talk about why credit scores and credit reports exist, plus why they matter, and how that impacts your life. And surprise, your budget too. So strap in and let's go get some brunch and mimosas. Ops. I may have mentioned the laundromat movie once already in the first episode of Avo Toast, but if I have not, I'm mentioning it now. And for the record, this is not a paid endorsement. This movie is available on Netflix, and it's a great example of the underworld of money. In the intro of the movie, the two narrators are explaining that money was used as a medium of exchange so that we didn't have to try to determine how many bananas I would need to pay you if I wanted to buy your cow, and that instead we could use slips of paper to represent the value of each and that way we would know how much to trade. A minute or two later into the intro, the narrators begin to discuss credit. The following is a quote from that movie. Credit is an invention that meant you no longer needed to carry around uh, millions of bananas on slips of paper. So now you have something invisible, credit, standing in for something tangible, a cow. Credit said that even if you didn't have all the bananas you need for what you want, you could borrow bananas from the future. So credit is just the future tense of money. Now, Investopedia defines credit as a contract agreement in which borrowers receive a sum of money and repays the lender at a later date, generally with interest. The term credit can also be used to describe the worthiness of an individual or company to become a borrower. It can also be used to describe the historical behavior of an individual or company that has borrowed before. Credit has a different definition when it comes to strict accounting. So to minimize the confusion today, We are only going to be talking about this future tense of money, this borrowing of money, and not the accounting-specific definition of credit. Credit is used in our society in multiple ways. Your credit history is a measure of your ability to repay debts and demonstrated responsibility in repaying them. Landlords, mortgage lenders, credit card companies, and even some potential employers will look at credit history, credit reports, and credit scores before they decide, A, whether to loan you money, employ you, or allow you to rent a living space from them, 
B, how much money to loan you, and C, at what rate of interest to loan you money. For this last one, the higher the risk of the borrower, the higher the interest rate, because it protects the lender if the borrower does not pay the loan back in full. Ultimately, credit history is used by lenders to indicate how high the risk of loaning money to you will be. They are assigning you a risk score. They want to know you will pay them back in full and on time. If they decide to loan you the money, this is also called extending credit to you. The whole credit game is based on the concept of people spending money they don't have today and paying more for it tomorrow, earning the lender money in the process. In capitalism, that does help keep the economy moving on a macro scale. Now remember, macro doesn't necessarily mean it works for you on a micro scale. So instead of waiting to buy something, holding on to your money, saving, taking money out of circulation from the economy, you buy it today with a credit card. The credit card company will pay the business you purchased from, and you will pay the credit card company back later, usually with interest, earning the credit card company money for the transaction. That business you bought from is kept in business because you made a purchase. The credit card company is kept in business because you borrowed money to make that purchase. And you have to keep working to pay off the money you borrowed. Credit scores, then, are a measure of your risk in a numerical value. It's your grade in the class of Credit 101. Your credit report is your report card that gets sent to anyone that might consider loaning you money in the future. The most popular way to determine your credit score is using the FICO method. FICO, F-I-C-O, stands for the Fair Isaac Corporation, which is a major analytics software company. Provides products and services to businesses and consumers. But most notably for our episode today, it provides the software that's used to calculate credit scores, and not just in the U.S., across the globe. These are also known as FICO scores. FICO scores were first introduced in 1989, and different software versions are available and still used by different industries that loan money. It is possible that the factors that determine credit score could be updated in the future. So what's helping you today may not be helping you as much tomorrow. For example, medical collection accounts have historically not counted too harshly toward lowering your credit score. I've actually had a few medical accounts go to collections. I mean, who sends paper mail in in this day and age anyway? So that was part of the issue. But it didn't ding my credit score. This could change in the future. The FICO software uses several factors to calculate your score and are weighted as follows as of the most popular version of the software today, which is version 8. 
The first and most important piece of your credit score is your payment history, which counts for 35% of your score. The next is the accounts owed, which counts for 30% of your score. The next one is length of credit history. That counts for 15%. Then you have credit mix, which counts for 10%, and new credit, which counts for 10%. Your FICO score can range anywhere from 300 to 850. Here's what these scores mean. If you have a score between 300 and 579, this has a rating of poor, but I'm going to put this in terms of grades in school because we remember those better. You're failing. That's an F. It means you're well below average, you are a super high risk to lenders, and they are not actually likely to approve loans to you. So a credit score below 580 is a problem. If your credit score is 580 to 669, you have a fair rating. But think about this. Fair kind of reminds me of like, oh, I'm fine. Like if your boyfriend comes in and asks you, hey, are you okay? You seem kind of upset. And you go, I'm fine. I just think it's funny how uh, dot, 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 insert whatever he did wrong. It's not the greatest. You don't want to be fair. You don't want to just be fine. Okay. So it's basically a D. You're below average. Some lenders will approve loans. Some will not you're likely not going to have a rate, a really good interest rate. You're probably going to be paying out your asshole for that. If your score is between 670 and 739, this is considered a good rating, but don't kid yourself. It's as good as a C student. You're passing, hooray, you know, like C equals MD, whatever, but you're basically just average. You're a C student. No big deal. If you were always a C student, I don't mean to like burst your bubble, but you could do better. And C students in credit aren't going to get the best rates. You'll get the most noted rate, but you're not going to get the best one. So most lenders consider this a good score. You'll get loans They'll basically be what they're advertising, that you won't get any money shaved off. You're like basically taking any loan offer at face value. If you have a score from 740 to 799, this has a rating of very good, or I'll give it a grade of a B. You're above average. You're very dependable as a borrower. You're going to get some pretty good rates here. You're doing pretty dang good. No problems. But if you push your score up above 800, so anywhere from 800 to 850, they consider you exceptional. Now, growing up for me, an A was not necessarily exceptional, particularly if it was like a 90 or a 91 out of 100. You really had to have like a 99 or 100 to be exceptional, but all things aside, anything that's got a grading system, I'm here to, to fucking win it. So 
Of course, I want to be in that 800 to 850 category. What this means is you are well above average. You are, as they said, an exceptional borrower. And remember, the whole reason they score you is risk. In this category, you are of the lowest risk to the lender. Today, in the United States, 90% of credit decisions use the FICO score. So this grade is imperative to your financial health and your financial freedom. How do you find your credit score? How do you know what it is? How do you look for it? Well, one way is to use the Mint app by Intuit, like I mentioned in the first episode. And no, I'm still not getting paid by them for an endorsement. I, uh, I really do just use this app myself. I am comfortable with their encryption and their privacy, along with the number of services that they provide all in one place. So that's why I use it. That's why I'm talking about it, because it's just really, really fucking convenient. That's, that's it. They also do TurboTax, so it like connects your taxes to your financial setup. I don't know. It's just so fucking easy. Anyway, they pull your credit score from Experian, which is one of the big three credit bureaus, roughly once a month, once a quarter, I don't know. That way you can keep an eye on your score. And just for the record, the fact that they're pulling it from that credit bureau doesn't mean it's like a ding against your credit score because every time there's an actual credit inquiry where your report is pulled, you do get a ding. But somehow this has figured its way out so it's not dinging you anymore. Just like knowing your net worth is like taking your temperature, monitoring your credit score, is like taking your blood pressure. It's another way to review a piece of your financial health, but not the whole situation. All right, I also just casually slipped credit bureau in there, so let me explain more about these bureaus. First, if you hear the term credit rating agency, that is a company that monitors the creditworthiness of companies and corporations, not individuals. So credit rating agencies have nothing to do with you right this second, okay? We can talk about them later, but not today. They're not important for today in your credit score. The credit bureaus, on the other hand, monitor the creditworthiness of individuals. Despite deeming them bureaus, which brings government agencies to mind, or at least to my mind, these credit bureaus are actually private, for-profit corporations. Kind of fucked up if you think about it. They are heavily regulated by the government, quote-unquote, to whatever extent you believe the government is actually capable of heavily regulating private companies under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which is also known by its acronym FCRA. Don't worry, you don't have to remember that. The bureaus are limited in how they collect, disperse, and disclose consumer information, according to my sources. And their basic business model is that banks, financing companies, 
retailers, and even landlords will send your consumer credit information to them for free. And then they will analyze all of this data, compile it into a report that is unique to you, usually through your social security number, assign you a score based on their scoring software, and then they will go and sell this report and score back to any lender whenever a credit inquiry is made. That's how they make their money. There are actually more than three bureaus that do this work, but the three that matter most, particularly in the United States, are Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion. Each of these bureaus use a different version of the FICO software in order to create your score. When I told you that mix of how your credit score is calculated, that is slightly different based on the different versions of the software. So because of that, these three bureaus will sometimes have different scores calculated for the same person. The other thing that you need to know about this is that any credit inquiries that are made to just one or to just two of the credit bureaus will only show up on the report of the bureau that received the inquiry. So not all three bureaus will have that information on the credit inquiry. Some lenders will only actually pull from one of the bureaus. And as I mentioned before, to get your information, they have to pay a fee. So in most cases, they're attempting to save money. You know, they don't necessarily need all three scores. If they pay one of them, they consider that good and they're going to move on with their day. Sometimes they'll do it because they just have like a working relationship with one of the three companies over the other two. But a lot of it has to do with just saving money so they don't have to pay for your information three times. Now, the exception to this would be the mortgage lenders. When you get a house and you're looking to pull out money for a mortgage, you're usually asking for an exorbitant amount of money. I mean, six-figure amount of money, right? And that's a lot of fucking money. So they want to do a lot of due diligence to double and literally triple check your risk as a borrower. So that's why they pull from all three places. Mortgage lenders will usually use the middle score. So in math terms, they will use the median score, not the average. And so just in case you need a refresher, They will look at the lowest, middle, and high score, and then they will pick the middle score. That is the median in math. But they don't take all three scores, add them together, and divide them by three, which would be the average. They don't do that. So if you have two lower scores and one high score, they're going to think that you're a little bit on the low side. If you have two higher scores and one low score, they're going to think you're a little on the higher side. If all three of your scores are low or all three of your scores are high, you know, you're either fucked or you're golden, you know, based on whichever way that went. 
So that's how they do it. And when people talk about monitoring your credit, they are referring to checking out these three bureaus because lenders could use any one of these three bureaus or potentially all three, like I just mentioned, in order to determine whether they are going to loan you money. You need to keep an eye on all three of them. It's a pain in the ass. I know. A good idea is to take a look around the same time you have to do your taxes, for example. I mean, you could do it with some major holiday that you have some time off to yourself, like around your birthday, some other significant annual time period that you will remember to do this work. But I feel like when you're already buckling down to do taxes and it's kind of a pain in the ass and it's all this financial shit all at once, you might as well check your credit score at the same time, right? Because fuck, like you're already down in the deep end. So just stay down in the trenches and just get it the fuck over with. I don't know. Whatever. You pick what's good for you. But once a year, find a good time and remember it. Maybe put a reminder on your iPhone. So each of these three companies will allow you one credit report and score free each year without considering it a credit inquiry. How very kind of them to not make us pay for our own data. And get this, that is only since 2003, when Congress passed an amendment to that act I talked about before, the FCRA, and they called the amendment the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act, which also goes by its acronym, FACTA. Now, I'm actually going to mark this one as a win for putting limitations on capitalism because what the actual fuck, right? We have to pay to look at data about ourselves that is compiled without our knowledge or explicit consent, although they will tell you it's implied or that they disclosed it in a 500-page user agreement document or whatever, But I mean, we really don't get much of a say in it if we want to participate in this economy and, you know, enter other conversations taking place about implied versus explicit consent in the girl world today. And we can see how this implicit consent could be potentially problematic. To top it off, the data collected behind our backs could potentially cause us to have to pay higher interest or get denied for housing, a loan, or some other important thing in our life. So yeah, one free report a year per bureau. These guys can still pound sand, but at least we get the one. Thanks, Congress. So you can dispute and correct the items that show up on your credit report with each of these companies, which is why it's important to actually go check it once a year. And it could have some positive impacts on your credit report and on your credit score if you report anything that is not true. You need to give yourself probably at least two full eight-hour days to get through this, like a weekend or something, because it's a lot of fucking work to like dig through all three of these. And I'm going to be honest with you, the first time I went through my credit report, I had like my parents' names on my report. I had my little sister's name on my report. I had to go tell them to pull shit off. They had weird addresses that I had never lived at. I mean, it was wild, some of the stuff that was on this report. So I strongly recommend that you take at least two days, especially the first time, 
and monitor it once a year because once you get it cleaned up and kind of like solid, then you know it's doing well. And, you know, if you get done sooner, you'll get to enjoy the time that you got back. In addition to understanding what is on your credit reports and why your score is where it is, the other reason that you need to monitor your credit annually is because of the phenomenon of identity theft. Identity theft can vary in specific modalities, but ultimately, it is where someone else is using your name, your social security number, your credit card number, your date of birth, your driver's license number, or your bank account number, or any combination thereof, to create a financial advantage for themselves likely by taking out loans or obtaining credit, to create a financial disadvantage for you or both. And yes, some people are that vindictive that they will go fuck up your credit just to fuck with you. So generally speaking, as the victim of identity theft, you could be adversely affected by this because you could actually be held accountable for the actions of the perpetrator such as having to repay a loan taken out in your name or having negative transactions show up on your credit report and ultimately lowering your credit score, which would ultimately lower your ability to live your life how you want. So by monitoring your credit reports, you can keep an eye out for anything that is wrong or shady on your report, and you can get out in front of any potential adverse effects. A quick aside here, since we're already talking about identity theft, I want to give you ways that you can work to prevent identity theft from happening to you. The key here is the best offense is a good defense. Number one, if you do not already, make a habit of not sharing your birthday, whether that would be in your passwords, your PIN numbers, your social media handles, or other public places. If you post your birthday on Facebook, do not let strangers become your friends and make sure that your birth date and your account is kept strictly private. You also need to keep track of yourself too. I've seen several people who will have their full name or part of their name and their birth year in their Instagram handle. And then they will turn around and have their birth date without the year visible to the public on Facebook, or they will use their first and middle name on Instagram, but then they'll have the same profile picture on Facebook. So someone could cross-reference that and get their last name too. A couple of inquiries between social media platforms and boom, I have your full name and birthday. Now, a couple of sides here. I know some of you might innocently ask a guy that information, or girl, I'm not here to judge. You know, you'll probably ask that information plus the time and location of their birth because you're trying to determine their sun, moon, and rising signs. Plus, you know, get a full chart readout because you want to make sure he or she is compatible with you, but do not return the favor. And gentlemen or, you know, other ladies, uh, date ladies, if you're listening, don't give this info out on the first, second, or third date. If you become exclusive with this person, 
sure, maybe indulge her belief in astrology or his. I don't care. Otherwise, protect yourselves too. And sorry, like, you girls can do without astrology stalking every single man you ever go on a date with. Save it for the ones that are not in the hookup culture rotational patterns. I.e., after at least three months. And that is per any book authored by a man written to help women date that I've ever read or listened to. Three months, girls. 90 days before you ever get into that situation. But I'm not a dating coach, so you do you. But I am a money person, and you need to watch it. So with this particular piece of advice, you know, it's definitely targeting cishet normative dating relationships, but it could be more broadly applied to LGBTQ plus dating. I'm just not as familiar with the dating advice given in that context. So please don't take this the wrong way. I'm just coming from where I am. Okay, number two, keep your wallet close by you so your credit cards and your driver's licenses are nearby and not visible to a bystander. Forward seems obvious, but you never know. Number three, you should invest in a wallet that has a signal blocker because it could help keep someone from stealing your credit card, debit card, or other information. Literally anything with a magnetic strip, which could also be your driver's license. So the magnetic strips on cards have been particularly susceptible and very easy to read. But even some of these tap-to-pay cards could be at risk from some shady McShaderson that you just happen to pass by. Example, and I don't live in New York, so roll with me on this one. Some corporate-type dude in a suit, pretty sexy-looking, let's be real. He gets into the subway. He's got a messenger bag. He could be standing next to you. His bag touches your purse. Hey, he's respecting your space, right? Like, The subway is crowded, but he's not touching you with his body. His bag is touching your bag. Cool. Next thing you know, someone is making super crazy purchases on your credit card. In this instance, he likely had a card reader device, probably homemade because there are actual YouTube videos out there to teach people how to do this, and he would have been carrying it in that messenger bag, and you would never know it happened. Honestly, you're just kind of pissed that he didn't talk to you or ask for your number, but also it's New York, so I'm guessing you guys just don't want to talk to each other in the subway. All fair. Whatever. Okay, number four. And I know that you guys have heard this one before, but I'm going to say it anyway. Never, ever, ever give out your social security number. Don't do it. No one needs to know that shit particularly if you're in a long-term relationship that you think you're going to get married to this person. Nope, don't do it. Promise. Wait until you're fucking married because then you're fucking tied legally. Don't do it before. Not until the paperwork's in place. Don't do it. Do not put them as a beneficiary. Do not give out your social security number even if they say they're going to put you as a beneficiary. Don't fucking do it. Don't do it. There are plenty of companies out there that will profit off of your fear of identity theft. But if you turn some of these simple precautions that I've just mentioned into everyday habits, you will be doing pretty well without having to pay someone else to make you feel better about it. And 
after this budgeting episode we just went through, do you really want to pay this when you could, you know, put these precautions in place for free instead? Just a thought. In addition, there are also tons of other resources out there. The main takeaway that I wanted to get to for today is that you should be monitoring your credit reports from the big three once a year. Now that we've established that your credit report can really fuck up your life if it's not great, what can you do to make it better? How can you fix it? Let's revisit the several factors that FICO uses to calculate your credit score. They were, again, payment history, 35 fucking percent. Accounts owed, 30 percent. Length of credit history, 15 percent. Credit mix, 10%, and new credit, 10%. Let's dive into each of these in a little more detail. The largest factor affecting your credit score is your history of making payments. If you are late, this will lower your credit score. That could be on your credit card, on your rent payment, on your utility bill, anything. If you are consistently late, or if you miss payments, this will lower your score even further. If you have given up ever trying to pay back your loans and you just let them sit there ballooning out of control while you continue to bury your head in the sand, you cute little ostrich, yep, you guessed it, this will kill your score. Crisis? Not averted. The opposite of this, of course, is to make full payments on time. The other thing here is to occasionally, when you are not dealing with cash flow issues, to make larger payments than necessary, especially for credit cards and student loans, but it also pays off for mortgages and auto loans or any other loan really. That would pay off more of the principal, aka what you actually owe, and will reduce the amount of interest you have to pay because you will finish paying the loan earlier than the loan terms actually call for, at least for most loan structures. So the sooner you can pay off a loan, the cheaper they become. In that way, it's beneficial to you And it lets lenders know that you are trustworthy enough to pay off your loans. Therefore, by paying off your loans consistently, on time, your score will rise. If you haven't been doing great in this category, there is no better time than now to prioritize this in your budget. Your score will not rise immediately because they will be looking for consistency. A few on-time payments in a sea of missed or late payments will not look trustworthy initially. They'll look like the occasional positive statistical anomaly in your otherwise shitty borrowing habits. So consistency is key. The second largest factor in determining your credit score is how many outstanding loans you have how much these loans are worth, 
And in the case of credit cards, what percentage of your credit limit is outstanding, aka still needs to be paid. For credit cards, the closer you are to maxing out your credit card, as in the more money you have out there that gets you closer to your credit limit overall, the lower your credit score will be. Alternately, if you carry little to no balance over each month, your credit score will rise. The more money you have outstanding, the lower your credit score will be. While you may be an excellent borrower, having a bunch of money loaned to you could make you a bigger risk for the next loan that you want to take out. So if you already have a mortgage, a car loan, student loans, and your credit card balance is kind of close to your credit limit, you will probably have a hard time convincing someone to let you take out another car loan, another student loan, another mortgage, or even a new loan to purchase a new smartphone. So the higher the value and number of outstanding credit accounts you have, the higher your score will be. Now this feels slightly counterintuitive because you have to have money loaned to you to some extent to have a history of managing credit. For now, just recognize that the less credit you have extended, the better your score will be so long as you are participating in the credit game. The next factor weighs in half as much as the accounts owed at 15%. The length of your credit history is still an important part for building your credit, though. The longer your credit history, the higher your credit score will be. The reason for this is, if you have credit for only a short period of time, like you got a Victoria's Secret credit card just so you could get the discount in the store that day, then you went and immediately paid off your balance, you closed the account. This short extension of credit will not earn much for your score. Yes, you were responsible, you had very little outstanding, and you only had one account, but that only earns you the first 65% of the score. Holding the account open longer helps, in particular, using the card and holding the account open longer. But we'll discuss that a little bit more when we dive deeper into credit cards. Lenders want to be able to normalize your borrowing behaviors over a long period of time. If you have 10 years of credit history where you have consistently paid your loans on time and in full, you are going to make lenders much more comfortable than someone who has only been doing that for six months. The caveat here is not 10 years of credit history, but it's 10 years of credit history with one account. So if you constantly open accounts and close them, it's not doing you the same benefit as if you had one account open for 10 full fucking years. If you only had that credit account open for six months, let's say, compared to this 10-year person, and you have the same payoff habits, you both are excellent borrowers in terms of paying off your loan on time, 
The person who has been around for six months is still considered a credit newbie. They're still just green. And it's really tough for credit card companies or any credit lender to predict whether this consistency for six months will continue for years in the future. Again, credit scores are all about quantifying the risk that a lender takes to loan you money. The next factor is credit mix, and that counts for about 10% of your credit score. This is just looking at what types of loans that you have currently. Do you have four credit cards and nothing else? Or do you have a diverse mix of credit, like a mortgage, a car loan, a credit card, maybe a smartphone loan? I can't speak to how each of these types of accounts affects your credit score specifically, but what I can tell you is that having a diversified portfolio of credit demonstrates to lenders that you can manage multiple types of loans, which translates positively on your credit score. This factor will not make up the bulk of your credit score, but it is likely going to be the little push that you need between credit categories. It's particularly helpful to bump you up from being a B student to an A student in Credit 101. The last factor used to calculate your credit score is whether you have any new credit accounts opened. Here's a scenario. Roll with me on this one. Let's say Apple's latest software update pushed your old iPhone over the edge. It's just not holding a charge. It is not keeping up. It's taking forever. You know you need a new phone eventually, and you just got tired of dealing with this. So you bite the bullet. You don't have $1,000, or at least based on last episode, not available in your budget and your savings to cover this particular purchase. Let's say you decided to take out one of those loans for a new iPhone instead. You figure you could manage a $50 monthly loan payment, particularly since your last phone loan payment was already at $35 a month, so you're only shaving about $15 each month off your budget extra than you had before. You look at it on a per day basis, you think, you know, I can manage to shave off 50 cents a day. So you sign up for the new iPhone payment and away you go. Then you use your new iPhone to check your Mint app a few weeks later and you notice that your credit score dropped. The only thing that you did differently since the last time your credit score was updated was get this new phone and the subsequent loan. That's right. That's a ding on your credit score. This is so because that temporary uptick in borrowing hints that your immediate risk is slightly higher than it was before. As lenders, they don't know whether you're running around on a mass borrowing spree. So they basically drop your score as a proceed with caution to other lenders. With each new loan you take out in the near term, the lower your score will become. Generally, this will resolve itself if you maintain the other categories and don't take out new credit all the time. Maybe skip out on the Target credit card. Just because they'll give you a discount in the store today doesn't mean that this won't negatively affect your credit. And that could have greater implications to your financial health than that $60 you saved on your purchase today. 
All in all, this one is mostly out of your control. If you need to take out a new loan or a new line of credit, your credit score will drop some. The longer you go without opening new loans, the higher your credit score will be. But this will be very slow, like how pounds come off and on between morning and nighttime. Like you'll likely see a few points fluctuation, but it's not really enough to kill your score astronomically on its own. And it's not really enough to sit there and panic over. In summary, your credit score is a measure of the risk you pose to a lender. Credit is gathered based on any bill you've ever had to pay, be it housing, utilities, loans, or possibly even medical bills in the future. Any institution that will consider loaning you money looks at your credit history, your credit report, and your credit score. Sometimes potential employers will as well. Paying all your bills on time and in full will have the biggest impact on improving your credit score, so make sure that your budget takes all of your bills, both regular and irregular, into consideration so that you can keep your score high. You can monitor your score regularly through various companies. Mine is meant by Intuit. You can also check your credit report annually with the big three bureaus. Check your report to ensure it is correct and free from error or fraud. Your credit will impact your financial life in so many ways, and a low score will cost you much more in both the near term and the extended future. So next week, we will get into part two of the credit game, all about credit cards. There was simply too much to say to fit it all into one episode. So go check your credit girls and may your mimosas and bank accounts always be bottomless. Cheers. This has been Let Them Eat Avocado Toast. Brought to you by Camex LLC. Any questions, comments, concerns, or requests for consultations should be directed to our email at lte.avo.toast at gmail.com. All sources used for this podcast are available upon request. All opinions expressed in this podcast are the express opinions of the host and do not represent the opinions of Camex LLC. All music used is stock music from GarageBand by Apple. Kristen Atherton and Camex LLC remind you to please drink responsibly.